0: So we're going to have a chance to sit down now with uh, David from Rumor to Drive. So if you would welcome him. So I know that you just got off uh, the stage over there talking about all kinds of different things. Uh, So we were just chatting backstage a little bit. So right now, like you were telling me some of the things that really drive you and you volunteer with and stuff. So why don't you share a little bit about that?
1: Um first of all if I if anybody was over there at three yesterday and I missed that thing, I felt so embarrassed I, I missed an event I was supposed to be at. Yeah,
0: no, you're good, you're good.
1: So if anybody was there and was bummed out, let them know I'm sorry. Uh I play in a rock band called Remedy Drive. Oh, that was kind. <laughs> and uh I volunteer with a counter trafficking organization called the Exodus Road. So I split my time between touring with the band and um, doing undercover work in brothels and red light districts around the world, spying on mafias that are, that are selling our children for sex. And uh, it's, a, it's a weird combination of jobs, but I've tied them together and uh, the Remedy Drive community has helped fund all these operations and all this cyber forensics gear and spy equipment that we use to rescue girls out of trafficking and take down the crime syndicates and the criminal networks and the mafias that we're spying on. Uh, and that's been the last seven years that that's been going on.
0: So from that, uh, because it's a passion of yours, does some of your songs and things kind of flow from that?
1: Yeah, it started with a couple songs. And I, I start, you know, imagine being at a Christian record label and having your band come and start telling you that uh, instead of writing, say, for the whole family, positive, encouraging stuff, that I want to write about slavery and about boy soldiers and about sex trafficking and about the apathy and the, the really anemic response from church people to this problem, these problems. And my a and guy was like, um, he said, but isn't, isn't worship singing and that all that social justice stuff is something else? And I was like, man, read Amos 5, punk. <laughs> and uh, then I went to my marketing director. And I said, man, I have to write about this stuff. I just watched a documentary with my daughter about Boy Soldiers. She was five at the time. And she says, Dad, why not God protect those boys? And I just cried with her. Went to my marketing director and said, man, I have to do this. I'm being pulled this direction. I can't not talk about this stuff in my songs. And he looked at me and he said, and this this is the Christian music for you in a nutshell. He said, David, I'm a whore. I need you to give me something I can sell and that's nashville you you were born there yes i was <laughs> uh, and that's where i went to my wife and i said we can't do this anymore we got to go out on our own so i we've been independent since 2012 and so we've been making all our own records my brother philip produces and we sing about it but at the same time as amos says and as isaiah 58 says the king of the universe is wore out with your songs and your festivals and your conventions amos says i hate your songs I hate your prayers. I'm going to plug my ears when you pray because you plug your ears to the cries of the poor. So shut up with your singing. <laughs> this is like, obviously this is the message. It's a little bit of a paraphrase. <laughs> and go do justice. Take care of the refugee. Take care of the exile. Take care of those imprisoned and enslaved. And then come back and sing. So that's, what I'm, that's the way I'm trying to live my life.
0: So that's, that's a little bit almost of an opposite journey. So many bands start out independent with the goal of getting to a yeah. label. And now you guys have moved in the opposite direction. So how has that kind of shifted things for you guys?
1: Well, there was 9 million people hearing my song all along a week, and that's not happening anymore. <laughs> but there's been a group and a community in the Remedy Drive Nation, and especially with youth pastors that I've met over the years that are behind us 100%, and we couldn't have done it without these relationships that we built through touring and meeting people that are pouring their lives into students around the country. Um, and, you know, we started here on that stage, and to be here on this stage today, I've been playing music for 22 years, and I'm just thankful that I still get to play. And there are people in the industry that have been helpful to us as resources, um, but I learned it through the years. I'm 40 now. I learned, I learned the ropes, and, and my, my wife helps me out. She purchases all our, our, our uh, we buy clothes from survivors of trafficking through organizations that help rehabilitate them like this lady's elephant pants, we buy stuff like that from Thailand and Cambodia. Um, so it's different. Like as a kid, I always wanted to be a rock star. I still do, I try to be. Um, you know, but for me it's personally, the whole time on the rise, I was always like, okay, we gotta do better in 2007 than we did in 2006 and trying to build a career, you know? And, and that's kind of how it is, that's how we're wired. and to consciously go and make a decision to knowing that I'm going to take a few steps back in terms of success, how how you would measure success with album sales, with radio play. Um, That was a hard decision to make, but I couldn't not do it. Because I looked at that marketing director and said, man, I'm not that. I don't use that kind of language. That's not who I am. Right, right. So you were
0: doing so many shows and now you're only doing 60 a year. Does that make the show's Have a different
1: feel that make them like. I like that question. That it they're more special. Because I never dreamed when I was 16 and I started writing music at 13. I never dreamed that anybody would sing along. Um. A year ago, I played in Denmark for the first time, and you don't realize that when you play in another country. That in the same way that one person might sing, "Hold on, daylight is coming," and you can you can tell when that person's singing that they have an accent. You don't realize that a, a crowd also has an accent too, which was really fun. You know, the whole crowd sings my song with an accent, um, so everything's more special, and I'm grateful for it. Whereas before, I had this sense of entitlement. And I'd like, you know, I never said it, but sometimes like, man, you know who I, you know who we are. You know, you had that sort of mindset, and to, to to be forced to be humble about it and just be grateful, and you know, to carry my own gear, I love, I like doing it, and I'd rather play 60 shows. And make enough money doing that to provide for my family and to give me time to do the volunteer work, uh, then be missing out on my kids' lives by playing 100. We played 200 shows a year in 2010. That's too much. Man, there's a fiesta going on out there. Something We're
0: missing that. So you, you said you started here at Creation. So does Creation have a special, like, is this, like, how do you feel about being here again?
1: Well, I mean, the first time we played Creation, I think it was 2009 or okay, 2009. Okay. So it was a good 10 years in our career already. But coming back, you know, it's, I don't know a lot of Pennsylvania other than creation. <laughs> Pennsylvania's just this massive rural community, right, with beautiful trees and hills.
0: All right,
1: right. Um, it's special to come back, and I love the Darpinos, uh, Bill, and then getting to know Josh. And every time I see Bill, we always reminisce about the first time we met at a... Um, like a showcase, our, our, our record label or booking agency put us on this showcase for people that book festivals all over the country. And me and Bill just kind of hung out and talked about C.S. Lewis for a long time. And we both remember that it was like 12 years ago. Nice. So
0: most of the people in the room uh, are youth leaders, people that work with teenagers. Like, what encouragement would you give them um, today? Like, whether it has to do with the trafficking, whether it has to do with, like How would you speak to them just to challenge them
1: today? I'm distracted by this party out there. It looks so fun. So I don't know how to say this without it being misinterpreted. So please extend to me as much grace as you can. But I would encourage you to figure out how to be honest with the kids. Because the questions kids have, and I meet kids all over the country and all over the world... And no one's being honest with them. And they're going to start hearing true things about scripture, about Christian culture, about the history of the church in our country, that no one's telling them, and it's going to stumble them. And they're, they're not going to know what to do with it when they hit college because they're going to find out the truth in college. Not indoctrinated by some liberal agenda. They're going to find out the truth about the history of the church in America and about its complicity with racism and about the history of colonialism, and about some really hard verses about slavery in the Bible. Like, I, I went to the Bible to, to, to look for, for, for verses about abolition, and I can't find any, you know? Peter and Paul never addressed it in the way that, that would have been appropriate. <laughs> but how do I say that without sounding like a heretic? I'm sorry. Uh, and these kids are smart. They're brilliant kids. I hang out with them. But they're scared to be honest with you, because... Because they're used to people saying, well, you can't question that. You can't question that preacher. You can't question that authority figure. And you know what? Most of them, by the time they're 15 or 16, are going to have several authority figures and leaders that totally, totally offend them and stumble them through some sort of major moral failure. And these kids are just lost in the midst of all this. And they're going to say, look at the fruit of this thing. I don't want anything to do with that. As evidenced, if you read through all the uh, Pew research and the, the, how we're losing our kids. So I don't know all the solutions. So I'm just saying as a parent, I'm just really honest with my kids. My kids know all about sex trafficking. Um, they're really confused about how Christianity was so, um, so ingrained. The, 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 the idea of separation of races came really from a Christian worldview and from people quoting the Bible. My kids are like what is this, dad? Why is it this way? And they're fine out in school. You know, they read about slavery in school. They read about um, being in Nashville, man. I, I live like a mile from the Nathan Bedford Forest statue. Oh, yeah. He found oh. the KKK, yeah. and it's right there, and there's a ton of Christians defending this statue. This guy was an awful guy, that, that, and the statue was put up by the guy that assass- or defended the assassin of Martin Luther King Jr. So it's like the kids are seeing that stuff. They're on social media. They're seeing the debates, and they're just looking for someone to say, maybe, I don't know. Why does it say this in the Bible? I don't know. I think your students should hear that from you all the time. So how old are your kids? Uh, 13, 11, and 8. All
0: right, so you're getting into those teenage years. Yeah, right? I'm scared. <laughs> so you're hearing
1: a guy kind of trying to work it out on my own because I'm right, scared of right. losing them.
0: How what, what, your oldest boy or girl?
1: My oldest is a boy, Jack. All right. Named okay. after C.S. Lewis because my wife would not, let me name him Clive Staples. What? <laughs>
0: I think he appreciates that. <laughs> I think he does. Go, <laughs> so, oh,
1: even Clive Staples. When he's a kid, he said, my yeah. name will be Jack. So yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, who would want? Yeah,
0: Clive, so, Ow- Clive Owens. So you have boy, and boy, and then two girls. Boy and two girls. Oh, I have a daughter that's 21, and so I pray for you. So it's a it's a challenge. So, <laughs> so how does how do they feel as teenagers and preteens? about some of the work that you're going and doing around the
1: world? Well, Stella was, um, she was only three. And so when you're talking to a three-year-old about sex trafficking, it's different than talking to a five-year-old. But it was my five-year-old that watched that Coney 2012 video and said, Dad, why not God protect those boys? And practicing what I preach, I said, I don't know. I'm kind of angry at him. And we cried together. And I mean, she's talking about seeing boys carrying AK-47s enslaved and their sisters being raped, the child brides of generals. That's my my daughter's five at the time. And she's, is it too much for her to handle? Why is it that we're so scared of sorrow? Why is it that we idolize safety and security, put it in all our slogans, put it into our foreign policy and the way we treat strangers and foreigners? But Jesus was a man of sorrows that was acquainted with grief, and I want my kids to be like the man of sorrows. So as a family, we intentionally put ourselves in close proximity with suffering and sorrow and pain, because that's what Jesus did, and that's the way that Jesus wants us to be. And there's a lot of youth groups that come to Nashville and we, that will feed, we go down to the War Memorial, yep. and there's several hundred homeless people that get fed every week, and we get to participate in that sometimes. And I just want my kids to see the world for what it is. Because the suburbs are a lie. It's Disneyland, and yet the majority of the world lives a certain way. So I... Stella, though, at three, one of the low moments of my life was when she said, Dad, when you go and rescue girls, do you have a lightsaber? And... <laughs> I hated having to tell her no, man, because that image <laughs> of Anakin Skywalker in her mind and that child's mind, is no longer there. And then Ava's like, is older, and I mean, they walked those streets with me. I took them over last year, and we walked on in Bangkok, Thailand at midnight, right down the same streets I work, and I'd whisper in their ears, like, I was like, that hotel right there, I got escorted by a, a mobster up to the seventh floor of that hotel, and he frisked me, and I took videos. He didn't find my video camera. And we took videos of all these girls that they're selling in that hotel. And we, we took down that mafia, baby. And I got to tell my daughter about that. And she saw it. And then I noticed for the first time on those streets, usually there's so, much, so many women trying to sell themselves to you or pull you into their brothels. Or walking down with my kids was the first time I wasn't getting grabbed in the arm or getting pulled into these places, you know. And people just looked away. And I was like, Stella, you got to smile at these women. They're wonderful women. These are kind of, the kind of women Jesus Christ hung out with. And so just to talk to them about it that way. And I loved it that my 11-year-old, and this is why I think, Ben, we're talking about young kids, and not everybody should tell their young kids about this, but by the time kids hit their teens, they, they need to know what the world is. Um, Ava was 11, and, and so I interviewed them, and I videotaped it. You can go to my website and see, you know, Remedy Drive slash journal. Uh, I asked her, I was like, how'd that make you feel? And just immediately, she said, Dad, I was angry when I saw those old white men with those young Thai girls. It made me angry. And I just liked that because hope, hope is like a safe-sounding word. But the reality of hope, you have to have anger and courage. If you're not upset with the way things are, if you're content with the way things are, if you're not angry with the way things are, there's no need for hope. But if you're angry, that's where hope comes in. And then the courage part, the courage to do something about it. So our kids need to see the way the world is. And they need to see courageous examples going against the grain, telling those in authority, no, you're spending your resources incorrectly. Why do we keep on building buildings when the poor in the neighborhood of our church buildings are going ignored? Why? One youth pastor said to me, I went to my senior pastor, he says, and I said, why don't we have any programs for the kids from this neighborhood? all these suburb kids comes in, and the kids in this needy neighborhood our church is built in, Franklin, Tennessee. We don't have any programs. And seniors senior pastor said, you're young, you're naive. I don't think you realize how much work those people are. Then, if that's not symbolic for an endemic that's part of our culture, our safe for the whole family culture, then I don't know what is. But you guys can change it. You're right there with the kids. And my fear is that if we don't change it, game over for our kids. They, they, they really are going to see through the facade of a money-making machine that takes care of all our salaries, mine included, because I I tour and get paid by churches, but neglects the point of the gospel, which is this. Quoting Isaiah the prophet, Jesus Christ said, the spirit of the Almighty is upon me, and I have been anointed to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom to the captives, liberty to the prisoners, and a restoration of dignity to the oppressed and the downtrodden. And when I look at the, the gospel of our movement, it doesn't look like that. It's bad news for poor people because all the resources are getting sucked in to, um, to talking and praying and, and all this other part. And where's the action? And these, co- these cost $100. But Instagram, like, marketed me a ton. So I don't want to end up on preachers and sneakers, that Instagram account. <laughs> <laughs> but we're talking about preachers buying $1,500 pairs of shoes. What kind of abomination is that? And why aren't we saying anything about it? Because all of our, all, all of our, it, our livelihood depends on it. So it's a, it's a hard road, but the prophets were always stoned. So you have influence, and you can change it. Like the only way it's going to change is youth pastors. That's why I have hope, because I see kids, I see their fire, I see their passion, and you're either going to throw a wet blanket on it and say, no. Let's just tell people about Jesus. Well, people want to see Jesus, and Jesus wants to be seen. And the God of the universe is in a cage on our border today. The God of the universe is being sex trafficked in Thailand. I was imprisoned, and you visited me. I was being oppressed by your government, and instead of taking the side of your government, you took my you took my cause, even if it went against your politics. Even if, what, what, if it went against what you think is going to be safe, you, you instead chose to follow me when I say 2,100 times in Scripture. Side with the poor and the powerless. I'll take care of you. God says in Isaiah 58, if you side with the poor and the powerless over those in power that are oppressing the poor and the exile and the refugee and enslaved, if you side with them, I'll watch your back and I'll also go before you. So there's security there. You know, doesn't take drones or barriers. I'll, I'll, I'll take the security of the God of the universe, or I won't, and I'll, and I'll look to Caesar to take care of me. But I want to trust that what he said is true. Or it might cost us our life. You might tell a kid, go live dangerously, and then you'll have to, to tell that kid's parents that they died in India Fighting against sex trafficking, or they went to work with refugees in Turkey and they lost their life. And this girl that was 18 came up to me and said, I heard you speak at a festival last year and I'm going to um, Myanmar. And her mom was with her, and I was like, oh shoot. And then I looked at her mom and I said, This is not my fault. This is your fault. You raised her, right? <laughs> <laughs> but like, let's nudge that, you know what I mean? Let's nudge that. Uh, and that's what's exciting about the kids you're working with, man, because they have a fire. And I just don't want to see that fire go out. I want to see, see you breathe an oxygen on it. Tell them they can do things. Tell them their five loaves of bread and their two fish matter. As naive as it sounds, as audacious as it sounds, tell those kids that their little offering, their little contribution to justice and mercy and compassion, as commanded and instructed by the teachings of Jesus and the rest of the scripture, that those things matter. And that is how the world's gonna change, is as the kingdom of heaven is realized through the actions, the selfless actions of humans that put the priority of the kingdom over the laws the land, over their own safety, and over their own, all of our own, Opinions, and obviously, this is all opinion. But
0: well, for those that were just in the last session, you'd know how ordered that is because that's so close to what Jason was challenging us to do is to encourage and breathe life into our students' dreams and visions. So, if you've got questions that you want to ask, if you want to come up, I'll uh, just you can just line up over here and uh, you can ask uh, questions. So, if you want to come. Long walk. I know the long walk. I know it's right. You've done this before, though, so you should be ready. Right.
1: Still not giving the microphone.
0: Though. I'm still, still not giving you time. the microphone. It's not gonna happen. <laughs>
1: hey, um, <laughs> the question I have: What do we do when we have senior pastors that may not have the same vision we do in trying to help the more marginalized? How do we help them catch it besides prayer? I'm doing that part, but is there anything else that you could think about and recommend? Oh, that is such a hard question, man. I don't know. I'm sorry, I have no idea. Well, tell them to read the Bible.
0: Well, you're, but by your example, well, by your example, though, you took your kids and you let them see, like you exposed them to the truth. Yeah. And so, helping, sometimes helping your pastor see the need and, and those things can even awaken them.
1: So. I don't want to say anything because it could cost your job, and I've seen it happen before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, just, just maybe read Amos 5 and Isaiah 58. And when Jesus says, uh, I was hungry and you didn't feed me, I don't know you. Without making any theological assumptions about what that means, because I don't know what it means. Because um, when Jesus gathered the nations, that's what Matthew, Matthew was talking about. He's saying when Jesus gathers all the nations together, he's going to judge nations by the sheep and the goats based on what they did for the most vulnerable and the exiles and those running for refuge. And then it says that in Ezekiel, it says the real sin of Sodom was that she was arrogant and overfed. She, she had too much and she was unconcerned uncon- about the cause of the needy and those coming into her borders. And that's the only time it says what the sin of Sodom was in Scripture. So there's there's 2,100 verses that talk about this stuff. Like it's overwhelming. And I feel like it's a conspiracy that I know the Bible so well. I grew up in kind of a a strange uh, conservative home church network. So I knew the Bible really well. But no one ever told me that these verses existed. That Jeremiah the prophet says, to know me, says the Lord God Almighty, means to take the cause of the oppressed. That's what a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is, to have a personal relationship with the poor. And I always thought, oh, I don't want to do that stuff. But then you realize that's what you long for. Whether or not we know it, we long to give our lives for for someone that is less fortunate. Shout out from Bel Air.
0: You came to play at our church. You know, you Brendan, guys watched Brendan my, uh, Moore. Uh, you guys watched my,
1: uh, oh yeah, Bam. That's Bam, right. yeah. yeah. Okay, so. Bam's with the, Bam. Okay, his, is he in your youth group or was he? He was, yeah. So Bam was in this guy's youth group. He saw us for the first time at, uh, uh, on that stage in like 2009. First thing he saw was me standing on my piano and he was a kid. And then um, he kept on emailing me wanting to come out and like help and he's a big dude, so he's great. We brought him out a few times, didn't pay him anything. Then eventually we, we hired him to be our guy. And then, bam, Brandon Moore uh, got hired by Leland or uh, Zealand, Zealand, because <laughs> uh, our our bass player was also playing with Zealand. And now he's all on staff with the Newsboys, yep. or you know, run running yeah. sound and doing all sorts of work. You know, he's when, when the that Newsboys drum riser goes in the air, bam, it's there with the cables. So, antidote. So,
0: <laughs> so we have an anti-trafficking group at our church, and it's, it's a great relationship, pretty new uh, ministry within the last uh, three or four years, something like that. But um, what are you seeing around the country with um, new groups like that popping up, and do you feel like the church is starting to change, or uh, is it just a lot of friction? New groups. Like, um, like for our church, it's a new ministry, anti-human trafficking, uh, sex trafficking, ministry within the church that is trying to get the word out that's working with the youth group in the community going to conferences like talking about it
1: Um, i think that that's a great starting point and and i I, and i get excited and i'm hopeful but when i said hope's not giving up 12 years ago and when i wrote daylight is coming that was kind of of a naive hope my hope now is more guarded and informed and I understand the reality of funding and the average percentage of white evangelical churches of their funds that go towards meeting the needs of the poor and the powerless, the oppressed, is 2% or less. And some of that is included in marketing. If, and the reason I say that, it sounds like I'm picking on us, but the reason I say that is that that's got to change. Because there's got to be a priority. But there are priorities. Um, I play in a lot of places, and I'll play in a place that has, like, a sound system that costs a couple hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> and what's frustrating as a musician is they have a governor on it, that, so they can't run it past, like, 98 decibels. So it's, like, literally like buying a Ferrari and not going more than 35 miles an hour. So, like, I hate that. I wish we spent our money on the poor and the powerless. I, I wish we spent our resources and our time. But I get really encouraged by churches like the, the church in Bel Air and I wish that we would lose our tax exemption unless we could prove that a, a reasonable amount of our budget was going towards, towards these things. I really wish we would all lose our tax exemption unless unless we could say we're giving 10 percent. You know, I, I would say 55 percent, but you know, but that would mean a reduction in pay or or a discomfort on Sunday morning because there's too many services or that we've got to combine buildings. So I'm hopeful I, I come up with all these. Some people call it prophetic imagination. That's a term I picked up. I I try to imagine solutions for how we could... Because people want to think that when they're giving to places that it's going, they assume that it's not all going to air conditioning and building. And and, and I want that to become a reality. And I see that inching up. And I know that students care. And I know that if it doesn't change, they're going to be like, I'm not sure what the point of all this is. I'll listen to my favorite preacher on a podcast... And sing some worship songs in my living room with some kids. And that's going to be church for me. And I'll go feed the homeless. And maybe that's what needs to happen. I don't know. You know, but the friction would be with the Exodus Road, what's hard for me to hear is sometimes when people say, why don't you just preach the gospel to those girls? Like my uncle said it to me. Otherwise, something much worse is going to happen to her when she dies than what's after So I was like, what? And who's going to do it to her? So, anybody else got any questions
0: um, you kind of hit you kind of touched on it and, uh, and I think my wife would fall into that category too um, the fear no. of our children being injured after you've gone to all this trouble to raise them no. and, uh, and, and she would just be very fearful sending them into that situation I think the suburbs would in general would have that trouble and we're in a little tiny country church I mean there's not many people around really for us I mean we'd have to go do something somewhere to do it but I I guess how do we reach reach in in and past that fear to even get kids into the right place to help or experience
1: I I think something that's Very, very evident with those with eyes to see and ears to hear is to see fear being harnessed by those in power uh, to keep us apathetic towards the plight of people that we could be helping. Fear is being harnessed by the most powerful people in the world to prevent good people from being good and from doing good. And that's why when Jesus was asked, what's important to God by an evangelical of his day? Um he responded with, well, a lot is written, but what's really important is is two things, and they're kind of the same thing, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That was his response. And that evangelical of his day said, who's my neighbor? And so he told a story about a really dangerous situation, a road between Jericho and Jerusalem, where people always got mugged. And a guy that was laying there beat up that could have been pretending to be hurt in order to rob somebody because it's a dangerous place and jesus also talked about somebody in his day where those in power religious power and political power that were colluding together they would refer to this group of people as dogs so they would dehumanize this particular group of people it was a different race and a different nationality and you see that same thing happen today. You see those in power dehumanizing certain people groups to make us scared of them. And they say awful things like they're more violent. Those people with that color of skin, they're more violent. Or those people from that area, if, if we let them be part of our culture, then our culture is going to change and we're going to lose our cultural dominance. It's the same type of thing that was happening there. There's a lot of reasons for those religious people that walked by the guy that was laying there bleeding. There's a lot of reasons not to help him. And in Martin Luther King Jr.'s last speech, The day before they shot him, he says, now is the time for us to develop a kind of dangerous unselfishness. And then he talked about that parable from Jesus Christ. And he said, those religious people that were on their way to their worship service, dressed in their Sunday best, could not be inconvenienced by the guy laying there, could not be inconvenienced by the girl being sex trafficked, could not be inconvenienced by the the crisis at their southern border, because they had singing and praying and talking and reading to do instead. And they looked the other way. And they went and worshiped God at their church. And I don't know what to say other than Jesus' followers were crucified upside down, Peter was. And if our work or our hospitality brings danger, We have to, as followers of the king, say, what's going to happen to them if I, if I don't help them? Instead of saying, what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to my privilege? Am I going to be less rich? Are they going to mooch off of me? Why don't they just help themselves? Why do I fly all the way across the world? Why not I just work here? All those questions, I think, it's, I think it's just part of our gospel. That's what we claim to do. Let's do it. Or, as God says, according to Amos, Let's stop singing. I really am dumbfounded to hear it. as Syrian kids were drowning in the Mediterranean Sea. I could not believe that so many people would sing on Sunday morning Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. I, I can't put my trust in, in horses and chariots or drones or tanks. The Bible says that over and over and over again. Don't put your trust in horses and chariots or swords. Put your trust in me. I'll take care of you. And if God takes the life of my daughter because she's doing this kind of work, it's going to be hard. If God takes my life, it's going to be hard for my family. But every time I go into one of those places and spy on those mobsters, I know that it could be the last time. And when I'm getting frisked, I'm thinking, God, please don't let them find what I'm carrying. Don't let them find my camera. Don't let them see what's on my camera. Don't let them identify my tattoo, you know I cover it up. Don't let them recognize me. Don't let there be facial recognition software in this club that's gonna, that's gonna tie me to my band and therefore to what I'm doing and therefore to the organization. Don't let some dirty cop plant, plant cocaine on me when I'm getting searched. And then I don't wanna be imprisoned in a Thai jail. Or a Latin American in jail. You know, I'm scared of that. I'm scared of that. But courage is moving forward in the face of fear. And the fear is real, but if our kids see us be courage, courageous in little ways, in little ways, and one of those ways is speaking truth to power on behalf of the God of the universe. In the same way Esther went and spoke truth to power and said, this particular group of people, not the whole culture, this particular group of people is under attack right now. They need representation. There's something about this people that I'm going to approach the ruler about. And that's what Esther did. There's a lot of examples in Scripture where, where Scripture says you need to advocate as Esther did, and other, other examples. Um, I think that's what it means to know God. And it costs Jesus his life. But no greater love has somebody that, unless they're messing it up, what is it? No greater love than laying down your life for your friends.
0: Well, I know you could have come in and you could have talked a lot about your band and all kinds of different things, but I just want to thank you for coming in, sharing your heart and your passion. I mean, you can see the energy that you have. And uh, I, I, just, I just kind of – would it be all right if I prayed for you? Yeah, I
1: would appreciate that. All right.
0: Lord God, I, I, just, I just want to join together, Lord God, and I just want to thank you for the passion that you've placed. And I just pray for protection over his life and his family. God, he's doing a work to reach out to those that they don't have a voice, they don't have someone fighting for them. And isn't that what you did for us? I mean, that is the gospel. When we could not cry out to you, when we could not come up to you, you came up to us. So I pray that you'll give them a platform, that you'll give them a voice, not just for those that are hurting, but to those that are in power, that they could see the plight of those that are poor, that they could see the plight of those that are hungry. The reality is all of us in all of our churches has those people. We just have learned how to be blind to them. Open our eyes that we could see the needs around us, that we could reach out into their hearts and their lives and pour our resources into their lack. God, I pray that you'd strengthen him, that you'd encourage him. Thank you for letting him come in and share his passion today. And I pray that those that have listened will catch a vision, and that you would anoint them and that you'd strengthen them. And as he travels back today, I pray you'd your protection and strength upon him in your name. Amen. And hey, thanks for coming in. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, let's give him a thank you today.